Hey there, thanks for listening. Quick question for you. Did you know that the one rental at a time book self-published on Amazon was actually selected by Forbes Real Estate Council as one of the 15 essential books you must read before getting started in real estate? Quite the accomplishment. It's actually book number three. Go check it out on Amazon. One Rental at a Time, written by yours truly, Michael Zuba. Hey everyone, thanks for watching. I have a highly requested show for you today. A lot of you like to talk about deals, and uh, I thought no one better to bring back to the show than Greg Dickerson. Uh, he and I are going to talk about how we look at deals early, how do we know which ones to spend more time on, when do we flush them, right? They're just not worth our time. So uh, let's welcome Greg to the show. How are you doing, Greg? Good, good, Michael. Welcome back to the United States, man. Oh, thank you very much. It's there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed as a, as a former, you know, traveler uh, for hundred thousand miles, hundred nights in hotels. I truly enjoy my own bed. So uh, thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah awesome. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to talk about deals, but more importantly, we're going to talk about them really early, like when they first hit your radar. You know, what are you looking for? Because we get so many things that come across our table, and I don't know about you, but I think, I don't know, one in 20 probably warrants further review. Why don't we start there? Yeah. Of all the stuff that comes across your desk or your phone or wherever you get them, what percentage warrant a deeper look, do you think? Uh, these days, probably, you know, 1%, you know, because okay. people just sling, sling mud up against the wall all the time. But in a normal healthy market, probably about one in 10, probably 10% of the deals you look at are going to be a deal. So, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's a single family house, whether it's a development deal, whether it's a multifamily deal, you know, I do the high level 30,000 foot view. First thing I look at is location. Yeah. I look at the asset itself. I look at the numbers. If it's a rental property, you know, what's the, what's the income they're telling me about, you know, how does that relate to the asking price? So I look at that quick gross rent multiplier because I know with interest rates where they are right now, you know, what, um, you know, what ratio of rental income to the uh, purchase price, uh, where that needs to be in order for that thing to make any money. So from a rental standpoint, whether it's single family or multifamily, that's a real quick, you know, if this thing's bringing in, you know, $20,000 a year rental income, they're asking 200 grand. That's, that's a good ratio, right? You know, somewhere around there. Okay. We froze up a little bit here. Yeah, we did. It's uh, mobile technology, but I think yep. we're good. We had a second delay there. Sorry, folks. Now. We're, we're going to keep going. So again, just to summarize that, uh, if, it's, if it's close to the 1% rule, I think you said $20,000 in income and $200,000 in price, probably going to get a deeper look. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the first step. Or if it's higher than that, you know, obviously, sure. the, the, you know, you want the most income you can get for the dollar, but that's the first thing you look at. So once it passes that test, if I'm looking at a single family cash flow, if I'm looking at a multifamily, I mean, this works if you're talking about $2 million a year net operating income works sure. the same way. It doesn't matter. If it's a development deal, it's a little bit different. So development deals, I'm looking at number one, what's the highest and best use of the property and how do I determine that? And the value work out in relation to what can be done with the property. So you got to take a deeper look at the area, what's going on around it. What are the uses around that property? What, what does it look like the demand is? Is it a lot of rooftops? Is it a lot of commercial? Those two things are going to dictate what that vacant property, is it in a resort area? Is it in a downtown area? Is it suburban? you know, what, what, what's going to be some best use. But I think for the most part, most of your people are looking at single family homes and multifamily, smaller to mid-sized multifamily properties. So same thing there. 
every single deal I look at, I look at two things, right? So if it matches that gross rent multiplier, if it falls in the box where that looks like it's going to work, then I take a deep, deeper look at the property itself, the area it's in, what's it surrounded by, what are the retail and office uses around it? Is it surrounded by car dealerships? Is it surrounded by laundry mats? Is it, you know, high end, low end, mid level, you know, what's all around it? What do the cars look like in the parking lots that are around it and that are in the parking lot of that property? What does the property itself look like, condition, you know, that type? Of thing. And is there a value add component to the land itself? Is there extra land to develop? Can I add on to the building and expand the building? You know, how can I maximize the property or is it maxed out? So those are the types of things that I look at. And a lot of times you'll, you know, sometimes a property will come across your desk where the price doesn't make sense, but maybe it's got extra room to do something. So I had a deal I did one time, you know, it was an MLS property. It was listed first. It came out and it was $500,000 for a house, right? And the house was worth like, I don't know, 250,000. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I, you know, but I said, you know, there's something interesting here. It says extra land. So I looked a little deeper. Turns out the house came with two buildable lots. Uh-huh. So I did my calculation and I said, okay, I can pay $350,000 for this property. I'm going to get two extra lots um, or I can pay two fifty, whatever it was. It was like half of what they were asking. Uh, I can get these two lots. I can renovate the house, sell it, zero it out. My balance is zero on the lots. So ridiculous offer. They were asking 500 million. Yeah. They said, Hey, instead of rejecting the offer, they said, Hey, we'll take the offer, but we need to stay in the house while we start building a new one somewhere else. So I said, okay. So what we did was how much do you need down? They said, we needed 50,000. I said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll buy the property. We'll pay you 50,000 to use for the deposit. We'll hold the other 200 in escrow until you move out of the house and uh, turn it over to us. Then we'll give you the other 200 to use for your new house. In the meantime, I'm going to start building on these two lots next door. Right. So while they were in the house for six months, building their new house somewhere else, you know, out of the area, I'm building two houses next door. They move out. I give them their 200,000. We renovate that house, flipped it, sold it for, I don't know, $300,000. So we got all of our money back and two free lots, built those two houses. I don't know. We put 150,000 in each one of those houses, you know, and sold that. So all in all, in about nine months, that deal, I don't think I was out of pocket more than 300 grand at any point in time. And it made $250,000. <laughs> not a bad deal when you can dig a little deeper into an MLS listing. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, initially the price was no good, but it said extra land. So you got to look for those little things. If it says extra land or roof to, room to add on or whatever, mm-hmm. just because the price is bad, doesn't always mean it's going to be bad. And even the ones where the ratios aren't that great, you just never know what a seller is going to do till you put it in writing. So I always say, just put it in writing. Even if the agent says, Oh, they'll never take that. You never know what a seller is going to do till you put that thing in writing. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, you got to put it in writing. You got to, you got to test them and you got to retest them. Right. So I've offered, I think my record is five or six times on a property over a six month period. Mm-hmm. Right. I never changed my number. Yeah. It, it just, it just became more and more interesting to them as time went by. So, uh, you know, follow yeah, up. I've had deals come back, uh, you know, as many as five years down the road oh. after I made an offer. Yeah. People hung on to my information and, <laughs> I didn't follow up. They followed up with me, Yeah, you know? So, I mean, that's another big one is follow up, but you know, basically we're talking about deal analysis. So, yeah. Um, so anyways, I look at everything like that. I look at what's the extra opportunity, what's the value add. Then, you know, once we decide, okay, we're going to move forward with this, then we're going to, then we're going to get all of the, you know, documentation to support all of the assumptions. So the property is being represented as it's worth X. We're asking X, the income is X, the expenses are X. So I gather all of that information and I start scrubbing the expenses and I make sure that I know 
what those expenses should be and understand the area it's in because utility costs can be higher or lower depending on where you're at. Insurance can be higher or lower depending on where you're at. Taxes are going to get readjusted to the new purchase price. So you got to change those assumptions. You know, look at their operational expenses in terms of management, advertising, legal collections. Collections is a big one. A lot of people, you know, in the, uh, um, you know, extra income category, right? You'll see, you know, late fees and collections. That's not always a good thing. <laughs> you know, you want to understand what's up with that. And, and, you know, that's a revenue center, but, you know, is that a good thing? And maybe right. it could be. It's just how, how it works. So, and then you want to verify what's called economic occupancy, economic vacancies. Uh, and what that means is people can say, hey, we're 95% occupied. Well, that's great, but are they all paying? Yeah. So you might be 95% occupied, but only half of them are paying. So, exactly. you to verify what's called economic occupancy. So, very um, cool. That's, that's a quick high level view. Yeah, you know what I would love to talk about because again, you do things that that I don't. Let's let's pretend you a deal came across your desk and it was a couple of acres of just raw dirt uh, in an area that has some development. So it's just not like you know cornfield somewhere. Yeah. Um, what would you be looking for, right? So it, it comes across your desk. It's priced enough for you to go see it. Right. Are you driving around? You know, a half a mile radius to see what's there. I mean, what does somebody with your skill level go? Okay. There's a plot of dirt. I know I could build there, right? You've done it. But what do you look for as you're driving around going, trying to figure out highest and best use? So, you know, immediately what is surrounding it? What's going on around there? So is it surrounded by houses? If so, what price point? How are they selling? How long were they on the market? Um, you know, uh, how long were they? How many are under contract? How long were they on the market? How many sold? How long were they on the market? So you look at those things. Okay. If there's commercial uses, you look at what, you know, what types, age, style, those types of things. So the first thing you got to determine is what is missing in that area. So hmm. uh, if you're going to do a commercial development, is it office? Does it need to be retail? Does it need to be a coffee shop? Do they need a barber shop? A little strip center? Can it be a high rise, you know, uh, condo building? Uh, maybe it can be townhouses. So you just kind of, kind of want to see what's going on around the area. Look at the sales and the demographics. Are there people just the you know, stuff selling in days where people are just snatching up anything residential? Mm -hmm. Is stuff renting and rents are going up and everybody's on a waiting list. Well, that means you might, you could build an apartment building or something, right. you know, or maybe it's, you know, depending on the size a lot, you know, it could be a little residential infill. You're just building townhouses or houses or both. It could be bigger where you could say, well, I can build, you know, a couple hundred unit apartment building and there's no, uh, there's no um, vacancies around the area. So there's demand or it might be, man, there's a ton of houses, but there's no grocery store. There's no coffee shops. There's no Chipotle. There's no Starbucks, you know, that kind of, there's no hair cuttery, you know, whatever. Uh, those things are out in your area. So you look at that and say, well, maybe there's a strip center um, that I can do all those things and I can build above it, below it, behind it, around it. So, uh, so that's kind of what you do. And you do look at that surrounding area because people tend to stay for core services within a very small radius of where they live. Sure. People like to live near grocery and shopping and things like that. So you want to fill the gaps with what's there. And if there's a ton of that, then you need more rooftops, you know, if people uh -huh. are, are moving in and living there in good schools and all that. So you look at what do the schools look like? you know, all the basic fundamentals. Okay. And then I'm curious when you're sitting in front of that, how does your brain translate? I don't know what you would call it. Time frames or phases or, you know, are, are you thinking 18 months from, you know, dirt to lease up or how do you, how do you transfer time? Because time's such a big factor. Yeah. It depends on the size of the and scope of the project. So if we're building a few houses, you know, 10, 12, 20, 30, whatever, a little small subdivision, you know, that can be generally done depending on, so I'll understand first the, the uh, municipality I'm dealing with, how sure. long do, do the approvals entitlements take? Generally six months to a year in most areas, could be a little longer, a little less. 
So just your approval process alone, then how long is it going to take me to build what I'm going to build? Houses are generally going to take you, you know, six to eight months, depending on what you're building. Some you can do a little quicker if they're smaller. Uh, and what's the demand? What's the absorption rate? If I bring 30 units online all at one time right now, can I sell them? Mm. Some areas you can, some areas you might need to phase that. So that's kind of what I get by doing my due diligence, looking at the surrounding area, talking to agents and people and uh, seeing what else is going on. Uh, if it's a multifamily project, you know, if it's 20, 50, 100 units, that's going to be a two to three year cycle. Okay. So from the time you get it built, broke ground, get it, especially right now, get it finished and leased up, it, that's going to be at least two years, Okay, 18 months to two years. If you're going 100 units and up, that's going to be three years, you know, and it could be as many as four or five to complete stabilization, you know, depending on how many units you're delivering, if it's in the 200, 300 unit range right. and, and beyond that, you know, into the 500 unit deals. Okay. Very cool. So I'm curious, when you look at everything that's going on in your business, and let's just think about the last five years, how much of it, and, and just a raw percentage is fine, how much of it is turning raw land into highest and best use? How much of it is buying something and doing some kind of value add? You know, and if there's a third bucket, you know, what that might be? So, um, you know, probably 90% ground up. Okay. You know, especially on the commercial side, maybe 50, 50 on the residential side, you know, buying houses, renovating and selling them as well as, you know, building ground up infill. Um, and then, you know, a little bit of that adaptive reuse, maybe one or two projects here or there oh. where I've taken a building and done something with the building itself, but mostly it's ground up, you know, that's, okay. that's kind of where a lot of the demand is and there's less competition, you know, ah. usually. So why is that? Why is there less competition? That's an interesting word. Is it just people it's too risky, too time consuming? They don't have the skill or money or what is it? All of the above. So it takes, yeah. you know, a lot of capital, deeper pockets. Um, you know, it is more risky, uh, you know, from a capital standpoint and a lending standpoint, you've got to be strong. You got to be able to qualify. You got to have good, good cash. You got to be able to, you know, um, have a long-term outlook. Uh, most people are looking for that quick buck, you know, in development, there's good fees to be made on the development side, but it's over the cycle of the project. Mm. So, you know, it's not like an acquisition fee when you take down a multifamily property and you get paid as soon as it closes on the development side, you don't get your money until the project's done. Uh -huh. So you got to be able to, you got to be able to do it, you know? And, uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I spent a whole year working on four hotel sites. Now these are $30 million hotels, 30 to $40 million hotels, but just in the early planning due diligence stages of securing the sites, getting the performance built, putting together the deal decks, raising the equity, because this was all institutional stuff. I mean, I spent a year just doing that before we ever even started the entitlement process. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. So um, that's, that's interesting, right? So lots of ground up development. Um, what, how many projects would you say your I don't know what you want to call it, evaluating, looking at in a month. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you want to clarify that. Yeah. You know, me personally, um, you know, my parameters and the things that I'm looking at are a little bit different, but you know, every day I'm looking okay. at one or two, one or two things a day, every day, somebody's sending me something. Wow. And then clients that I work with, as you know, I do some coaching and mentoring and um, some of my clients in the multifamily space, I mean, they're looking at a hundred deals a month, you know, to get wow. one uh, on the residential side. I've got some house flippers and wholesalers I'm coaching at a very high level that are doing uh, you know, seven figures a year, they're doing hundreds of deals a year. I mean, they're looking at, you know, hundreds of deals a week, you know, wow, talking yeah. to hundreds of sellers a week to get a deal, a deal, you know, so that's in the residential house flipping at scale where they're spending, you know, $50,000 a month. And, uh, 
you know, they got to talk to a lot of sellers to get a deal. So on the commercial multifamily side, probably about a hundred deals generally a month. You got to look at to get one good deal somewhere in that, in that thing. But yeah. I'm looking at deals every day, you know, a couple, two or three a day. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And again, that's all network. That's all just letting people know you're there. It's having a proven track record, you know, you're a producer. So people bring you stuff to, to evaluate. So yeah, uh, look at, get my advice. Do I want to be a part of it? You know, just any number of things. Don't want to buy it. So it's just, yeah, I'm always looking at stuff. So what part is reputation play in this? It seems like you've built your reputation up over decades, which is yeah. awesome. Um, I'm guessing you're getting lots of kind of first look opportunities at this point. Uh, reputation is key or critical, you would think? Yeah, I'm, I'm a closer. People know it. They know that if I step up, I'm going to close. So, yeah. you know, deals are always coming to me because they know that I, that I, you know, I've got resources and I can get it done and will get it done. So, um, you know, I'm just, in, and I'm in, been in my region for 23 years, you know, from yeah. North Carolina up into DC. I was in DC yesterday. So I didn't get home till eight thirty last night, you know, looking at, looking at deals and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I've got some stuff I'm looking at, you know, all over the country, but, um, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it keeps you busy. Yeah. And you're having fun. I mean, every week yeah. I talk to you, I, you're smiling. It's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. This is what I do. I love it. I have, you know, I've got people all over the world that I'm working with, you know, deals all over the country. I'm involved in, you know, I'm looking at businesses and companies and those opportunities all the time. So I like to stay busy. Uh, I like to be out there. You know, reputation's important. The key for somebody getting started is making offers. Yes. So, you know, brokers are going to send stuff out, right? They're just going to send stuff. So they want to see how you think and how you respond to the brokers will tell them how sophisticated you are and the questions you ask will let them know how experienced you are. So what you want to do is you want to ask the right questions like we just talked about mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the property itself you know, and, um, you, you want to ask the right questions about the area that the property's in and then make an offer, you know? So the more offers you put out there, the more credibility you're going to build in the, in the mind of the broker. Um, even if you, you know, it doesn't cost you anything or take much time to throw out an LOI. It's non-binding. It only takes a few minutes. Now I'm not saying just do it just to be doing it. You know, you want to generally be interested and make sure the deal is going to work, mm -hmm. but you show the brokers how serious, knowledgeable, and sophisticated you are by making intelligent offers through an LOI. Yeah. <laughs> Something I've always told um, new investors, right? The newbies up front. And it'd be interesting because feel free to tell me I'm an idiot or I'm wrong with this. Totally okay. But I tell them to get focused on an asset type as they're learning, right? Regardless, I don't, I don't judge what it is. If you want to do office, do office. If you want to do hotel, do a hotel. I don't care. But, you know, spend that first six months a year only looking at that stuff because you just can't learn it if you're kind of scattered. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can, and it depends on your geography, you know, and I think we've talked about this, you know, if you're limited in your geography, you have to broaden your type of property that you're going to invest in. If you're going, you know, to widen your geography and go nationwide, then you can be very narrowly focused on the type of property and class and type are not the same thing. I say that all the time. There's, there's, you know, real estate is an asset class. It's an alternative asset class. Within that are types of properties, residential, commercial, Within commercial, you have the six main types and you have subtypes and classes within that. So like self-storage is not a class. You know, mobile homes are not a class. You know, apartments are not a class. Those are types. Then you have your classes within those. So again, language is important. When you talk to a broker and you start saying, yeah, I'm interested in the self-storage class of real estate, they're going to know you don't know what you're talking about because it's, it's a type, right. you know, and then there's A, B, C, and D within those different types. So just a little thing. Language is important. 
that's how you kind of build that credibility and show them, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm sophisticated. Even brokers will use that term wrong sometimes. You know, it's just, it's an industry thing, but yeah. we got a little bit off topic there, but. That's um, okay. One thing I want to make sure we do in this episode, we haven't done enough of is how can people follow you, right? Get, get you know, follow your YouTube channel. Uh, what type of folks should reach out to you for coaching, coaching and mentoring? Because again, you're giving us all this value. And uh, I, think, I think lots of people want to reach out to you. So how, how, how can they first follow? And then what's, how's best to reach out? Yeah. So my website, gregdickerson.com, all of my social media is on there. So I'm on all the social media. I put videos up every day, just like we're talking about here. It's real stuff. It's how do you do this? How do you do that? Yeah. Um, and you know, I've done it all, you know, every, every type of real estate, every type of <clears throat> investing in the equity capital thing. So gregdickerson.com, it's all there. I've got courses, um, for people that are video, uh, video courses. And then I do some group, you know, calls with that. So it's, it's an online course meets, um, coaching meets a mastermind. It's like, there's nothing else out there like it. It's really cool. And then I do one-on-one stuff, a little bit higher level, you know, and it's anything from residential. I've got a course on that. I've got a course on commercial, um, and multifamily real estate syndication. I've got a course on real estate development and uh, a course on entrepreneurship where I show people how to build their business online or off, create a platform and, you know, generate revenue in their business by, you know, um, utilizing the platforms out there and, you know, expanding their business and put together online courses and stuff. So cool. uh, it's a school of entrepreneurship that I've created. That's kind of what I'm really focused on building that out. Eventually I'll have a physical location where people can come and take classes and seminars. <clears throat> so I'm really focused on that right now. So yeah, very cool. Very cool. Cause I, I, I see it growing. So I just wanted to make sure we got out there. Yeah. I have a question totally from left field. Um, and if you don't have an opinion or a thought, no problems because we don't prep for these these yeah. interviews. <laughs> so there's, there's this virus, right? Uh, Hunan virus or whatever yeah. the, the big Corona. Scene. Corona. Thank you. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I can't, I mean, there was the SARS thing, you know, a decade or two ago, but I really can't find any kind of historical evidence to go back and see what might happen to the economy, cost to capital consumers. Are you looking at it kind of thinking it could hit the consumer or do you have you pegged it hey that's an asia thing not really interested now does, does something like that even hit your radar yeah oh yeah i'm watching it and you want to be sensitive to anything on a scale that this thing is growing right in china i mean they're shutting companies down um you know they're i mean i saw a picture today of this building just with cots thousands and thousands of cots lined up ready for yeah. people um and then if it hits this country and it's it's not contained i mean yeah you're going to have a workforce you know, situation, it would have to be really huge to, to make a dent in the economy. But hey, you know, Facebook, um, Apple, uh, was Apple and Google, they shut down operations, yeah. you know, to send people home and get this thing under control. So, you know, it can affect certain aspects of the economy, but I mean, this is a big world. It's going to take a huge, huge epidemic yeah. pandemic to really, you know, put you into, throw you into a recession or make some kind of a big dent. But, you know, airlines are shutting down, yeah. lights are shutting down, companies. Yeah. So it's, it's making an impact. Yeah, I, I look at it this way. It, it, certainly, it, it certainly needs to be tracked. It needs to be dealt with, all that stuff. It's going to impact um, that part of the world uh, pretty bad, uh, at least in the short term. Kind of like the GM strike did to General Motors, right? They just reported today. They were shut down for 40 now, days. That, but that was huge. So that, that's something that I felt on a personal level. level. Ah, I'm not okay. going to feel this coronavirus on a personal level, but I've got, I drive a Suburban, Chevy yep. Suburban, and I needed a part. And they couldn't get the parts because of the strike. They're like, Dude, ah. we can't get common parts because GM is shut down. So those types of things did affect me at the consumer level. Whereas, 
right now there's nothing in my area being affected by the coronavirus yet. Right. Um, you know, but who knows? I mean, it could. It could, yeah. So I see the flight. I see airlines being hit. They had seven billion dollars with SARS, at least based on one report I read. The cruise industry is really in trouble, right? Three I bet, cruises yeah. uh, already kind of in quarantine mode. That's that's not good. Yeah, those things. Yeah, that's <laughs> just floating <laughs> incubations, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's uh, it's going to infect that part of the world, no question. Let's hope it. Let's hope it gets under control. But it, it affected cost of capital this week. Rates went yeah. down 0.2%, which, you know, when you have a three on it is significant. So, um, yeah, yeah. And the stock market, you know, I mean, they're always blowing in the wind. So whatever flavor of the day is going to affect the stock market as well. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's really crazy. I mean, it's how quick this thing is spread. Yeah. In our lifetimes, we haven't seen anything like this, like a black plague or yeah. you know, SARS was a big deal. But this, I think, is worse than SARS. Yeah, it's highly, yeah. So again, so I'm, I'm just glad. Yeah, it hits my radar again. It's, it, it, I don't think it affects the U.S. economy. It'll affect some companies, right? Like people doing manufacturing in China, which will be shut down for weeks. That'll have a, yeah. that'll have a one-quarter blip. Um, but yeah, if it comes here and, and explodes into the 20, 30, 40,000, that, that will impact consumer behavior. You know, yeah. it, it hasn't yet, thank goodness, but it, it could, right? Yeah. You, could, you could see a, a trend where that would happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, crazy times we're in. Yeah. All right. Well, I just wanted to see if I was crazy for following it. Glad I'm not. So, uh, any, uh, any parting thoughts, uh, before we, uh, before we exit this interview, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been a lot of fun. We covered a lot of stuff and, uh, you know, like, like you said, pick a lane, get out there, get with it. If you haven't done a deal yet, the key is to get your first deal done. Momentum creates momentum. Success breeds success. Confidence builds confidence. So, you got to start somewhere, pick a lane, stick with it, get a deal done, and then start rolling and expand from there. Very, very cool. All right, Greg, thanks for pulling over and talking with us today. We will, uh, we will talk next week. Yeah, sounds good. All right, buddy, take care.